I want us to spend time with all of the people in the story in a way that, you know, allows us to cultivate a sense of connection with them and to see the parts of their lives that are recognizable to us. And also just to recognize when they're being dicks. Welcome to You're Wrong About, the podcast that investigates history without impaneling a grand jury. Not yet. I forgot what a grand jury is, so I was just saying that. It's like a regular jury, but they're all wearing ball gowns. (laughs) I'm Michael Hobbs. I'm a reporter for The Huffington Post. I'm Sarah Marshall. I'm working on a book about the satanic panic. And if you'd like to support the show, we're on Patreon at patreon.com slash you're wrong about and PayPal and we sell cute mugs and t-shirts and stuff. And if you don't want to do that, that's also chill. Just settle in. Or bounce after five minutes, but we're glad you're here right now. (laughs) And today we're talking about, I think, Marsha Clark. Yeah, Yeah. you're right. I think this episode is also going to be Maybe kind of a, a catch-up episode, Ooh. and possibly a, a better title is The Arraignment, Ooh. because we're going to do OJ's arraignment on June 20th and the days leading up to it, basically the weekend after the Bronco chase, mm-hmm. from a few different perspectives, and we're going to bring our chorus in. Arraignment is one of those words like grand jury that I see all the time, but it's not clear to me that I know what it is. It's the part in Law and Order where we see... <laughs> The defendant with their lawyer and the prosecutor come in and Jill Hennessy is wearing a scrunchie Mm. and it's where you stand in front of a judge as a defendant. The charges against you will be read aloud and you plead guilty or not guilty. So it's like it's like a court hearing. Yeah, you're standing in front of a judge in a courtroom. Take me with you. Arraign me. (laughs) We're doing a little arraign maker. You're an arraign man. Yeah. (laughs) So where are we starting? So we haven't really zoomed out in a while. We've been close by with Paula for a couple of episodes now. And so I want to return to one of my favorite voices in the chorus of the series, which is... Oh, what's his face? G- Griffin Dunn. Yeah, Dominic Dunn. <laughs> Gryffindor... Gryffindor Dunn, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Ravenclaw and Didion. <laughs> so in Dominic Dunn's coverage of O.J. Simpson, we have a crossover event with one of our previous topics. Mm. This is from a Vanity Fair column called L.A. in the Age of O.J. And he writes, In the midst of all this, the Prince of Wales came to town. What a flat tire <laughs> that trip was. The beleaguered prince was simply not a hot ticket. There was a great deal of behind-the-scenes telephoning to beg people to show up at certain of the charity events. The stars did not turn out. There was no hostility toward the prince, merely indifference. (laughs) For a second, I was afraid you were going to bring it back to the Stanford prison experiment. Everybody got locked in the basement. (laughs) And Philip Zimbardo was was watching the crowd the day of the Bronco case and taking notes. Uh So, yeah, I guess it makes me happy or something that in into this story, we can imagine one of the other people we've recently talked about just going through, you know, peering out his limo going, hi. Yeah. <laughs> so where are we in time for this arraignment? Is this like right after the Bronco chase or like months after the Bronco chase? This is right after. This is the okay. Monday after. The Bronco chase is June 17th. 
on a Friday. And then we mm-hmm. have basically the weekend for the lawyers to prep and people to sort of catch their breath a little. Mm-hmm. And then the arraignment is on Monday. So does that mean that all of the evidence that they're going to present at the trial, they've already gathered, like the investigation period is over? No, not after 72 hours. There's there's a okay. lot to do. And, you know, there's also the gathering of the evidence and then the testing of the evidence. Oh, right. We're at the, at the beginning of trial prep. Okay. So they, they happen on parallel tracks that they're putting OJ on trial and they're still building the case against him behind the scenes. Yeah. Okay. And I know that we've taken over a year to talk about it, but it has only been a week since the murders. Yes. There's just been so <laughs> little time for an investigation to play out. Yes. We're doing a Christopher Nolan movie. Mm-hmm. Yes. So Marsha, as we've talked about before, is questioning Cato before the grand jury when OJ makes a break for it and the Bronco quote chase begins. Mm-hmm. And she, like the rest of America, ends up watching it on TV. Mm-hmm. She does not make a secret of her contempt for the defendant. And so in the following chapter, she tells us, I can never bring myself to call him OJ. And it galled me when everyone else did. No one referred to Charles Manson as Chuck. Yet even the people on my own team would talk about OJ this and OJ that. I had zero tolerance for it. Yeah. And she actually has like a swear jar, but it's an OJ (laughs) jar. And if someone on the team calls him OJ, they have to put a quarter in. Wow. And she says, I didn't hate Orenthal James Simpson. At least I don't like to think of it that way. Hate is not an emotion that a prosecutor can afford. Hate clouds your thinking and distorts your priorities. You can't let it get personal. Having gone on record with that noble sentiment, let me say that I reserve the right to consider Orenthal Simpson an unregenerate low-life scum. <laughs> okay, so she clearly did hate him, yes. but that's fine. And this is one of the areas where, you know, where I'm torn on Marsha, where like, you know, I think when you feel a sense of attachment to a historical figure, you can you can love part of them without loving every part of them. And I think Marsha really has a prosecutor's heart. Like she believes... Yeah in a world where there are bad guys and where you have to find the bad guys and put them away. This is 1994. This is the year that we passed the crime bill. I mean, this is this is like the acceleration of mass incarceration. Like it's all happening in this story. Yeah. Even as the story does not illustrate it in a more kind of direct way. Right. Okay. So I want to read to you four accounts of O.J. Simpson's arraignment mm. and then we're going to watch footage of it. And I'm going to read you the accounts in order of most to least sympathetic. Nice. (laughs) So here's the account of the arraignment by Lawrence Schiller, who wrote the book from which we get all of the Robert Kardashian parts and the People vs. O.K. Simpson. Oh, the courtroom was crowded on Monday, the 20th of June. Orenthal James Simpson. Is that your name? The athlete seemed to sleep on his feet, rocking a little, drugged. His skin was drawn almost skeletally over his face, painfully tight around sunken eyes. Simpson closed his eyes for a second, rocking forward as if he might fall. He almost missed his cue. Yes, he finally said. Mr. Simpson, do you understand the charges as I read them to you? Yes. Shapiro placed his right hand on Simpson's left shoulder, squeezing and directing. The athlete seemed to sink into himself, but when Shapiro squeezed his shoulder, he surfaced long enough to do what was required. What do you think of the language used to describe him in this? Well, that his eyes are sunken and his skin is stretched tight. Mm. I guess you could say that it's trying to sort of give a little bit of sympathy to him, but I also don't understand, like, the context of this whole book. If this whole book is a, like, 
OJ did it book or a like OJ didn't do it book. Here's how sad he looks. Well, it's a book written with the cooperation of the defense team. So oh, okay. it's, it is the defense team perspective book. So they probably are putting that in there to give us a little bit of look how tough this is for OJ stuff. Well, let's let's compare it. Mm. We are returning to Jeffrey Tubin's The Run of His Life. Ooh, no comment. No I comment. Have, I have. <laughs> Those are the exact words that come to mind for me also. A series of jokes just ran through my head and I'm not going to verbalize yes, any of yeah, them. Yeah, don't worry. You'll have yeah. other chances. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Simpson was arraigned in municipal court on the following Monday, June 20th. He was physically transformed from any O.J. Simpson the public had seen before. Looking dazed and bewildered, he staggered from the holding pen to the defendant's table before Judge Patty Joe McKay. He wore a black suit and white shirt, but he was denied a tie, belt, and shoelaces, even, apparently, collar stays, for fear that he might turn them into instruments of suicide. Head cocked to one side, Simpson stared vacantly around the courtroom. Asked his name, he appeared confused, and Shapiro had to prompt his answer. Asked his plea, Simpson muttered quietly, not guilty. The proceeding was over in moments. And in the only real business transacted, Judge McKay scheduled the preliminary hearing for 10 days hence, June 30th. I mean, this whole thing is such an illustration of the fact that, quote unquote, objective journalism does not exist. Mm. Because either one of these accounts, if you read them independently, you would be like, oh, well, that's just a factual description of what's going on. But you can see in the juxtaposition how much value judgment is going into each one of these, quote unquote, factual descriptions. Mm -hmm. Is OJ gaunt? Is OJ sort of, you know, skin stretched tight over sunken eyes versus he stared out vacantly? Mm -hmm. Like one of those implies mm -hmm. that he's the victim of something. And the other one implies that like he's just completely out of it. And maybe he's not very smart. Mm -hmm. Like one gives you sympathy for him and one doesn't. Yeah, totally. And like in one, he's like maybe drugged. He's staggering. Yeah. Like none of the language here implies that he's experiencing grief, which I think Schiller's writing does. Right. And now for least sympathetic... Marsha. Oh, I hope she says OJ should smile more. <laughs> that would be perfect. The next morning, Dave and I had taken our places at the council table when the bailiffs brought Simpson out of the holding cell. Finally, the prisoner entered the court. I raised my head and got my glimpse of OJ Simpson. He looked like he'd been sleeping on the street. He wore a dark <laughs> suit that seemed to sag on his body. In accordance with rules of the suicide watch, he wore no belt or shoelaces. His features were slack, his manner distracted. I suspected he was tranked. He looked half angry, half scared, utterly deflated. In the coming months, I would watch an alert, carefully coached O.J. Simpson put on an affable, confident face for the jury and the world to see. And I would remember the way he looked this first morning. A common thug. Ooh. Marsha. Marsha, that's bad. That's racist. Yeah. And if you published this book in 2021, the year we are now in, I guess... Thousands of people would be like, what the fuck are you talking about, yeah. Marsha? Like, what are you what are you trying to say to me? Yeah. Can you be more specific, Marsha? What, do you, what, what uh -huh. kind of thug do you mean? What's that? Marsha calling O.J. Simpson a common thug feels to me like like she's a career prosecutor. She's been doing this for, yeah. I think, 15 years at this point. I don't know if it's possible to come up and spend your career as a lawyer in a prosecutor's office without absorbing and reenacting that culture. Yeah. And one of the cultures there is the mass incarceration of men of color. And so in that moment, it feels to me potentially like Marsha is looking at, you know, this now defendant and saying like your celebrity has been taken from you, your power is being taken from you. 
I know what you are. You're one of the kind of people that I send to prison for a living. Right. You know, and I'm, I, I love the moments when I'm like on the same page as Marsha Clark because she's the one who's standing up and cutting through the noise and being like, this woman was nearly beheaded. Can we talk about Nicole? Yeah. And I'm like, yes, let's talk about Nicole. And like, we can do that without playing a role in that ongoing legal charade you know the facts are are strong enough without that yeah and without being like with all of the celebrity and everything else stripped away he's just a black dude which is right there on the page like that's basically what she's saying yeah this also demonstrates how much sort of projection we do into the demeanor of other people Mm -hmm. i mean it's it's a middle-aged man in a suit Mm -hmm. he looks tired but ultimately, most people's faces don't actually say that much. Like most, like there's a there's a lot of interpretation going on in people's quote unquote demeanor. Do you know about, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, but the Kuleshov effect? Oh, yeah. Can you describe that? My understanding of it is that it's the juxtaposition between, I guess, sort of a close up of somebody's face on film and then what they're looking at will give you a particular impression of how they feel. So if you look Mm -hmm. at somebody, say, looking out of a window, and then you cut to a car accident outside, and then you cut back to that person, you'll say, oh, that person looks sad because they're looking at a car accident. Mm -hmm. But then if what you cut to outside the window is like two kids playing basketball, then you cut back to that person. It's like, oh, he's he's thinking wistfully and nostalgically about his own past. Like he's he's thinking of this happily. Mm-hmm. It's exactly the same image, but you're you're projecting whatever context you have around that image onto what their face is. And it works, I think, especially if you have a neutral expression. Yes. So basically, if you go through life with a neutral expression, people are just going to accuse you of all kinds of weird shit. Oh, this is this is you going back to your own thing of that you think you have an inquisitive face. I just have a lot of thoughts and feelings about my eyebrows. Because I think that like they are naturally a little bit uneven and inquisitive, but also I have like deep set eyes, which I think can look villainous. I just think about my eyebrows all the time, Mike. I just get up and I stress about my eyebrows. Sarah's vacant look. She looked cranked. I do. Yeah. But right. But I, I, I do think a lot about how this plays out at trial, because the thing is, it is rare in the scheme of things for a defendant to take the stand in their own defense and to offer, therefore, the jury any kind of a sense of who they are when they're not being walked back and forth in handcuffs. Right, right. And if you have someone who is being accused of something, and if all you have is footage of them with a neutral expression, then just like, yeah, you're going to project whatever onto yeah. that, and you're going to be potentially very intensely prompted by the way the media is presenting the story. In fact, you probably will be. Right. And if somebody's testifying against a defendant and they're, say, looking down at their notes, are they doing that out of shame? Are they doing that out of anger? Are they doing that out of remorse for their crime? I mean, you can project almost anything onto that. Are they looking neutral? And if they look neutral, then are you then able to say like, oh my God, like you're so heartless. You don't even feel anything about this crime you've committed, even though they're probably being told by their lawyer, like just have as little expression as possible because you having no expression is bad, but like having some kind of readable expression would probably be worse because there's no correct way to look when someone is testifying against you. Like so much of this is really just a way for people to reenact their pre-existing beliefs about the case. Like if they think you're guilty, they're going to project all of that 
assumed guilt onto you and then use that as evidence. Yeah. Right. Of like, he was looking down at his notes during the testimony. And it's like, that's not actually evidence. That's literally just you projecting what you already think onto that person. Yeah. I mean, this is basically Nancy Grace's entire career. Yeah. This, this is like the uncomfortable moist area we're getting into is the, the Clark Grace part of the spectrum. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'll read more of Marsha's. This, this goes on. Shapiro stood close to him, patting his shoulder, whispering in his ear, fawning. Seemed to me he wanted to be close enough to his client to make sure he was in the photos. The municipal judge, Patty Jo McKay, took the bench and we all sat down. Orenthal James Simpson, is that your true name, sir? I asked him. He wouldn't meet my eyes. He mumbled, yes. To the charges stated in counts one and two of the complaint, how do you plead, guilty or not guilty? Simpson's reply of not guilty was jumbled. In fact, it was barely coherent. Then Bob Shapiro did something that shocked me. Shapiro beseeched the court to allow Mr. Simpson to redo his plea. You could have scraped me off the floor. Did he think this was a goddamn soundstage? Simpson plea, take two. I watched helplessly as the judge allowed Shapiro's outrageous request. This time Simpson, drawing on the thespian skills doubtless honed by his work in the towering inferno, reached down inside of himself and hit the mark. He restated his plea of not guilty. Enraged, I watched as Shapiro, his comically heavy eyebrows knitted in a show of concern, patted his client on the shoulder, <laughs> congratulating him on his improved performance. <laughs> That's fucking cold shit to bring Towering Inferno into this. <laughs> <laughs> I think so, too. <laughs> Not all of us have made every great choice in Hollywood, all right? And this is all with the massive chunk of salt, the salt lick, if you will, but like... Mm. I bet it is like really unprecedented and weird for a lawyer to be like my client requests a do over. Right. So, yeah, that makes sense to me as a as a potential breach of protocol. But I also I feel like Marsha is just like taking the defense team maneuvering very personally in this anecdote. Yeah. And, it, you know, it just she said that prosecuting isn't personal. I, right. I read that part. <laughs> I mean, it does seem a little bit like just tone it down, Marcia. It's fine. <laughs> I, I understand, especially since she's writing this book in retrospect and like spoiler alert, she did lose this one. Mm -hmm. That it's like every story becomes one where like O.J. Simpson is doing something out of line. Yeah. But like, I don't know. He just has to stand there for this one. Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if he's capable of really like screwing with your your whole thing that much right, right now. <laughs> right. She's punching it up a little bit. You know, we all do this. So do you want to finally watch this fabled footage, which at the end of the day is obviously incredibly boring? Yeah, it's, I think it's going to be like 30 seconds long as well. <laughs> it's going to be like two minutes. Yeah. Because <laughs> then I can project my own bullshit onto it. It's going to be great. Exactly. That's what I want. All right. Three, two, one, go. Are you ready to go forward with the arraignment at this time? Yes, we are, Your Honor. All right. Did you waive reading uh, of the waive statement of constitutional rights? Yes, we do, Your Honor. All right. People. Thank you, Your Honor. Mr. Renthal Simpson is that Please speak up so you may be heard. Uh, yes. Pardon me? I'm sorry. May we start all over here? Yes. Mr. Renthal James Simpson, is that your true name, sir? Yes. You're charging this complaint in case number BA097211 that on or about June 12, 1994 in the County of Los Angeles, you committed the crime of murder in violation of Penal Code Section 187A. Mr. Simpson, do you understand the charges as I read them to you? Yes. And have you discussed those charges with your lawyer, sir? Yes. At this time, do you wish to enter a plea guilty or not guilty? Not guilty. Not guilty. 
Yeah, what do you think of that? How would you describe it? So boring, oh my god. And yet it seems so exciting in all of those depictions. I know. What do you think of how the defendant looks? I mean, he looks like, he looks tired, dude. Mm -hmm. All of the things about sort of his vacant eyes and potentially tranquilized, and he seems kind of confused and a little bit disoriented, and he's not clear on sort of when he has to speak versus what is just a formality and he just has to stand there. That stuff all seems true. He seems kind of confused. As I would be if I were being arraigned. Also, isn't Marsha lying? Didn't Marsha say in her book that he said not guilty and then they had to do the not guilty part again? Yes, that is true. It's a weird thing to lie about, Marsha. He didn't have to say his plea twice. He had to say his name twice. There's a disparity here. Mm -hmm. She says his name and says, is that your true name, sir? And she writes, he wouldn't meet my eyes. He mumbled yes, which does happen. But he kind of goes, yes, in like kind of a questioning tone slightly. Mm -hmm. And it appears that he doesn't fully that like maybe he didn't fully hear the question that he's kind of blindly answering in the affirmative to, in which case he would want to do it over. Yeah, it's it's weird that she mentions that as like somehow meaningful. It seems like they have kind of janky microphones like. She's also talking pretty fast. It, it just seems like he doesn't know exactly how this procedure works. And he's a little confused as to sort of what he's supposed to respond to and whatnot, which is, I don't know. Right. Doesn't seem to be evidence of guilt or innocence. It's just like a thing that happens to people. Or of entitlement or of his team being, you know, a bunch of lowlifes. Like, right. It's funny because all of these people have made and will continue to make very bad choices and to do morally reprehensible or at least questionable things. But, like, this doesn't appear to be one of those moments. Yeah. So, like, you don't have to make it that. It's a bold move, man, to uh, punch up an anecdote that is readily available in in footage. Well, but that's the thing. This book comes out in, I think, 1997. And so it it was, but, like, not the way that it is now. Yeah. The same way Paula talks about having this, like, unscripted kiss with Michael Bolton. And then you oh, watch right. the video and you're like, well, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I would imagine too the way these books are constructed, like they're going to tell the story of the arraignment where nothing really happened except yeah. for what was supposed to happen. And I can imagine if you're trying to write a bestseller, you would be like, Marcia, do you have any grievances about that? Oh, you do. Great. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> yeah. It just ultimately isn't that meaningful of an event in the course of the next nine months. Which is why we've talked about it for 20 minutes. (laughs) Okay, let's talk about Marsha's press conference. Ooh, which we heard about from Paula, Mm -hmm. and Paula didn't like it. Yes, what did Paula dislike? What do you recall? Wasn't this the press conference where Marsha basically just said, like, we have all the evidence against OJ, and this was premeditated, and he super duper did it, and that's our conference? That's what we're telling you today? Yes. She's like, this man who had the gall to stand in front of me looking tired (laughs) is clearly a premeditated murderer. Like, this is the moment at which we get a taste of what this whole process is going to be like, basically. Mm. So Suzanne Childs, who is the press strategist for the DA's office, says there's going to be a lot of press. Marcia says that was the under fucking statement of the year. The lobby was jammed wall to wall with bodies, broadcast androids trying to muscle out the print scruffs. Photographers were dangling from the mezzanine. For a moment, I thought fright would get the best of me, that my voice might quaver. But then something remarkable happened. As I drifted toward that sea of reporters and cameras, I was enveloped by a sense of calm. All my life, I felt sure that something would happen to me that would make my life bigger, more profound. As I walked toward the lectern, I felt I wasn't even moving under my own power. To say that I felt a sense of destiny might be overstating it, but I do remember thinking, this is it. You were meant to do this. And then she says, it was premeditated murder. 
It was done with deliberation and premeditation. That is precisely what he is charged with, because that is what we will prove. And someone asks, are there plans to charge anyone else? And she says, Mr. Simpson is charged alone, because he is the sole murderer. Wow, she really went for it. She did the destiny thing, and then she just went up there with the, like, savage quotes. Yeah, destiny, sole murderer. Yeah. And then she says immediately after, in her book, she writes, I'd blown it. Man, had I blown it. What I had meant to say, of course, was that Simpson was not the sole murderer, but the sole suspect. I realized my slip almost immediately, but by then I was fielding other questions and correcting my error would only call more attention to it. I was sure I'd take heat for not using the word suspect. As it turned out, I did get heat, but not for that. The word that Robert Shapiro almost instantly seized upon when reporters spoke to him later that day was not murderer, but soul. The DA's office was not investigating other suspects he charged. In fact, this was completely untrue. The investigation was still wide open. The thing is, though, this is rich people justice. Mm -hmm. I mean, this happens constantly with low-level crimes. That prosecutors will punch it up and describe it like it's some sort of fucking Saw movie. And then what they actually charge the person with is like a super chill misdemeanor. <laughs> this is exactly the thing that OJ has 55 lawyers. So, of course, there's going to be like a whole legal process around this. And they'll they'll be like, oh, this tarnishes the entire endeavor of the case. And how dare she? Blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. This is the difference between rich people justice and justice justice. Well, I mean, I think rich people justice is justice. And justice justice is just like a stick with a string and a paper clip on it. Yeah. Because rich people justice is like, I mean, Bob Shapiro is not that great at his job, but he knows how to delegate to people who are. And yeah. like, just, you know, this is like that Nancy Grace kind of paradigm of being upset at someone having the gall to represent their client. Right. This is a bad day for her, understandably. And all he's doing is catching her mistake because she said OJ's the sole murderer which she knows is not the correct language, the murderer part. Mm -hmm. And then she is camouflaging the fact that actually the LAPD doesn't know that and is still investigating because it's been a week and is leaving open the possibility that he did have accomplices. She's saying right. that because she doesn't think he had accomplices is what I think is happening. Right. Yeah. I mean, to agree with the rich people justice thing like i'm sure this is the kind of thing she's used to being able to do exactly it's only when rich people get tried that we notice this kind of stuff right so meanwhile there's still a grand jury convened and she has to get more testimony out of cato that's still going on oh we're returning to our a story of cato and marcia this is the episode where everyone just doesn't acquit themselves all that well. This is the uh, screenplay by Noah Bombach section of the O.J. Simpson trial. <laughs> People being unlikable. So Cato, meanwhile, also watches the Bronco chase on Friday night on TV. Mm -hmm. We are now reading from one of our, our old favorites, Cato Kalin, The Whole Truth from the Actual Tapes by Mark Elliott. Mm -hmm. After footage of the Bronco chase and after that standoff finally ends... The book says, what followed was a rebroadcast of Robert Kardashian's earlier reading of O.J.'s suicide note, which mm. Cato now saw for the first time. He watched grimly fascinated as Kardashian stood before a phalanx of microphones and read from O.J.'s handwritten note. To Cato, it sounded like a suicide note, but he wasn't going for it. He felt it was nothing more than a scam, that O.J. wasn't going to kill himself. Oh. None of it rang true. As for Paula, that was all wrong, too. A lie. That wasn't how O.J. felt. He had told Cato on numerous occasions that he didn't love Paula and would never marry her. 
So what was he talking about? What do you make of that? Uh, I mean, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> We've talked before about how OJ talks to Cato about Paula versus how OJ talks to Paula about Paula. Yeah, there is the sort of the question of like, well, which one is the real OJ? Because he could easily be playing up his love for Paula to Paula, but he could be downplaying his love for Paula to Cato yeah. because this is what men do. Well, I think I, he, I think he feels differently about her while in jail. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I, I assume both are true, right? Because he is kind of in this orbit around Paula. Like he can't leave her alone. It's not to the extent anywhere near that it was with Nicole, just in terms of can't leave alone. Right. But like he does have some kind of a fixation on her, I think. Like, yeah. he can't let her get away. He does not like to let women get away. Yeah, because that's about him, not about her. Yeah, so he needs her in his life. And you can, like, say that you don't love someone and, you know, probably not, but still just feel very strongly that, like, they can't leave you. Right. So Monday after her press conference, Marsha returns to the grand jury to continue questioning Cato Kalin. Yes. So basically, Cato's testimony on Friday was incomplete because it was broken into by one of the greatest televised events of our time. Right. And now they're picking it back up again. So they basically, they were in the middle of this, and then they all took a Bronco Chase snow day. Mm -hmm. And then they're now reconvening to continue what they were doing last week. I mean, I think we can all probably identify with this more strongly than we would like to. Like, we are living inside of history, and we have to go do the most boring aspects of our jobs. Yeah, seriously. So I'm going to send you some stuff for us to read, and I would like for me to be Q and for you to be A. Oh, okay. I thought we were going in a different direction for a second. Sarah Marshall admits she's Q. <laughs> God, it's in all caps. They're just shouting the whole time. Yeah, it's hard on the eyes. It's these, hard on the eyes. These trial transcripts. So this is uh, from Marsha's questioning of Cato and the grand jury. And we're going to start with her questioning him about Nicole's guest house. Okay, and you're Marsha and I'm Cato. Yes. Okay. Did that particular property have a spare room there? Yes, it did. Can you explain what kind of spare room that was? On Gretna Green, there was a guest house behind her house. Were you interested for some reason in that guest house? Yes. Why was that? Because I lived in Hermosa Beach and it was a long drive and I asked if that room was available to live in. Did she respond? Yes. What did she tell you? Oh, these are so boring. She said... <laughs> Sure, you can live there. Did you move in? Yes, I did. During that period of time, did you become acquainted with the suspect, Orenthal Simpson? Yes. Did you ever observe them to argue or fight? I saw them close, and I saw maybe an argument. Do you recall the nature of the argument, or just that it was one? That it was one. So do you know what argument this refers to? Yeah, this is one where he's, like, banging in the door, yes. and Cato has to fix the door because he's, like, so violent. Yes. So it's like, yeah, I guess I remember an argument, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Argument-ish, who can say? And, like, what is the nature of the argument? Do you remember? No, eh. not memorable. Right. And we've talked previously also, this is a quote unquote fight that is immortalized in a 911 call that Nicole made at the time and where you can just hear her ex-husband shouting at her and threatening her and actively breaking into her house. The theme of this episode is people lying about verifiable footage. <laughs> it's like yeah, good tapes point. are available. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> it's like me writing a thing being like everybody remembers that dennis hopper wins at the end of speed and you just be like <laughs> we can all see speed like we can go get speed and you're like i know you've seen speed one time but how right. well do you remember it do you really remember it probably not yeah <laughs> so now we're, we're gonna skip the next big block of text and go to the thing that starts he told you he was going to see his daughter's recital okay so about the day of the murders 
Marsha asks, he told you he was going to see his daughter's recital at five o'clock? Yes. So at seven o'clock, you asked him how it went? Yes, I did. And did he respond to you? Yes. What did he tell you? He said, she was wonderful, beautiful, and he was proud of her. Tell me how he was behaving. Did he seem agitated, upset, nervous? No, nonchalant. Relaxed? Yes. Did he make any mention to you of Nicole at that time? Yes. What was that? In a good-natured sort of way, he had mentioned who... She was with girlfriends, I believe. No names. I don't know who. That he was wondering if they were going to age gracefully and what kind of outfits they were going to be wearing. Can you recall what his words were? It was about wearing tight-fitting clothes in reference... Good-natured. Can't you wear that if the... When she's going to be older, joking, like wearing tight-fitting clothes good-naturedly, like a grandma. When you say good-naturedly, that's what he was acting like? Yes. Was he laughing? Yeah, joking, laughing... Kind of wondering, were you going to wear these when you get older? Yes. Did he seem angry when he said that? No. So what do you think about that? <laughs> OJ's just such a dick. What is he talking about? He's talking about the women like wearing too tight dresses that like I guess aren't going to fit when they're older or something. I feel like Cato is saying like he was saying it good naturedly. And it's like, is it possible to say that good naturedly, Cato? <laughs> like, I don't know. <laughs> I love that just in every interaction, you're just like, God, this guy sucks. Right. Just once in your life, just like have a normal, have a normal conversation that doesn't leave people just grimacing as they walk away from the kitchen. It's funny that Marsha has chosen like the one moment in which OJ did not have the wherewithal to be annoying in which to find him annoying. <laughs> like, just wait until he says something. Don't worry. Also, I hate this thing in trial transcripts where they're like, did you ask him what time it was? Yes. And did he respond to you? Yes. And what was his response? It's like, just, uh, I mean, I guess I realize that everything has to be in this weird Q&A format, but like this whole, all of this could just be done in just like letting people talk. I don't know. I understand that there's, I'm sure, like various legal reasons for asking yeah. questions that way that I just, I don't know, but I trust are there for a lot of good reasons. But also I think trials are intentionally made boring and incomprehensible yes. because what's happening is often much less complicated oh my God, than it I seems know. if it's being presented to you in this highly ceremonial way with outfits, with like moments when you can or can't talk and you have to say certain words and yeah. all this stuff is happening in Latin. Like I really, it's it seems built to alienate normal people. Yeah, it is weird that we have this weird fiction of sort of 12 ordinary people who are assessing, you know, the facts of the case. But then we also have this weird stilted way of presenting facts and information that human beings do not encounter in any other context. Mm -hmm. It's like if you're going to have this fiction that ordinary people that were being judged by a jury of our peers why not make it so that, like, our peers can actually understand and absorb the information? This seems like what they're doing is presenting it to professional judges, mm -hmm. which is what they do in a lot of other countries. Then it would make sense. Do you want to hear the Mark Elliott version of Cato's exchange with OJ about Nicole's dresses from the actual tapes? Ooh, yeah. Cato asked OJ how the recital went. A smile crossed OJ's face. Sydney was great, he said. Then the smile vanished. But Nicole was trying to play hardball with me. He also complained to Cato about what Nicole had worn to the recital. It seemed to bother him a great deal that she had on a tight, sexy black dress, which OJ felt was totally inappropriate not only for the dance recital, but under any social circumstances for a woman her age. Nice. She's 35! I know. Cato, he said, shaking his head back and forth and blowing air through his lips. What is she going to do? Wear dresses like that when she's a grandmother? Wear miniskirts? For this kind of function, can't she dress like a woman? And then that's when Cato is like, can I take a jacuzzi? 
Marsha is saying, did he seem agitated, upset, nervous? And Cato has said in a different context, or will say in a different context, he was upset. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And one of the things that Cato talks about in his quickie memoir is feeling genuinely scared of, Mm -hmm. you know, what OJ's people could potentially do to him because OJ's a powerful guy. Yeah. And I understand being genuinely scared of that. But also it's just, he's not describing what he will describe elsewhere. And he's not describing what we can understand from any other source to be the case on this evening. Right. He's sort of the regular person in the story. Mm-hmm. And his greatest flaw, I think, is his very unfortunately relatable need to equivocate and minimize the conflict around him until it's too late. Yeah. Okay. And here's, we're going to read the final section, which starts with what happened. Did anything unusual occur during the phone call with Rachel? Oh, okay. So we will remember from a previous Cato episode that Cato is basically spending the evening on the phone with friends, first his friend, Tom, and then his friend, Rachel. And he is on the phone with Rachel when something strange happens. Mm Hmm. Marsha asks, what happened? Did anything unusual occur during the phone call to Rachel? Yes. I was on the phone with Rachel and talking. I heard a noise on the back of my wall, and it was it was like a three-thump noise. Go ahead and just demonstrate for the jury. Witness complies. So I guess that yeah. means I have to, like, thump. Here, let's try this. That's three nice. thumps. Nice thumping. For the record, the witness has taken his fist and pounded three times on the table in front oh. of him. Okay, or on the chest in front of him. Yeah. Do you have an air conditioning unit that goes into the wall? Yes. Is it in like a window or an opening of the wall? Yes. That wall that the air conditioning unit is in, is there a small little path alongside the outside of that wall? Yes. Next to that path, is there a fence? Yes, there is a fence. Is that the side border of the property of Rockingham, 360 Rockingham? Yes. The area on the wall where you heard that thump, those thumps, Was that near to the air conditioning unit? Yes. Also, the picture moved. And the picture on that wall moved? There's a picture over by the phone and it tilted. And I thought there was an earthquake. It tilted when you heard the thumps? Yes. So you thought it was an earthquake? Yeah. I told Rachel on the phone, hey, did we have an earthquake? She said, no, I don't think so. Don't tell me what she said. Okay. I don't know what tone Cato used for the okay, (laughs) but... Probably more polite. I don't know why Marcia (laughs) had to go there, but okay. Hearsay. Hearsay. You gotta show these Catos that you don't... You don't take kindly to their their bowl. God, that was so boring. Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> Is there a picture? Yes. Did it move? Yes. Was it related to the thumps? Yeah. It's like, all right, guys. <laughs> Obviously, something hit the wall and the picture moved. Yeah. Like, does it, does it have to be that boring? Like, lawyers, why is it so boring to be you? <laughs> yeah. And later on at the civil trial, he will say that it sounded like the impact of a human body. But he doesn't say that here. Oh, so the theory based on that testimony is that this is OJ like hoisting himself up over the fence and jumping back into his property so that he can make a covert entrance, sneak back into his house and then open the door to greet the limo driver and be like, hello, I was napping. Yeah. What do you think about that? What do you think of our friend Cato? It just seems like from the account in his book, there's a very consistent story of OJ acting very strange this night that I don't think Mm -hmm. is like coming through in these trial transcripts at all. No, it's not. Despite my excellent performance. Yeah, no, you were great. It it was not the fault of the actor. Thank you. You know what? (laughs) Yeah, and I just think he's not expressing that because I think that he is equivocating his butt off right now because he doesn't want to 
be the first person to testify about the volatility of this man. Yeah. Marcia says, Still, Cato's testimony advanced us a few notches. He had admitted that Simpson was a jealous guy, certainly jealous enough to manipulate his wife by buying her friend's loyalty. And during my questioning about the night of the murder, Cato had substantially widened the time period during which Simpson was unaccounted for. Now the window was open between 9.45 when they'd returned from McDonald's, which was 15 minutes earlier than the estimate Cato had given the cops, and about 10.53 when Simpson responded to the limo driver. Okay. And then he also testifies about the bag that he sees lying on the grass. Do you remember this? Oh, yeah. Marcia says, On the stand, however, he did reveal for the first time having seen a knapsack lying in the grass. Sure. Cato had rounded the corner of the main house, flashlight in hand. He checked out the area behind the garage and, finding nothing, started back toward the front yard and then opened the gate to let the limo driver in. He noticed a golf bag on a bench by the front door. He went back to check the area behind his own room, and by the time he ventured out front again, Simpson was talking to the limo driver. But now Kalen noticed something else on the grass near the driveway. It was like a bag, he said in Cato speak. Marsha, let's not <laughs> vilify people for using filler words. Right. It's okay to use like, Marsha. Marsha's been reading our iTunes reviews. Yeah, she has. Good God. Maybe she's been leaving us iTunes reviews. Cato speak. She says, that knapsack had not been found among the pieces of luggage Simpson brought back from Chicago. Could it have held evidence from the crime scene? Not bad for a recalcitrant witness, but I was convinced even then that Cato knew a lot more than he was telling. True. So it's funny because like he does say things, he testifies as to the facts. He just minimizes what he's able to minimize without outright lying. Right. He's just massaging everything a little bit. <sighs> so that's it for his testimony. It's funny. I imagine them walking out of Parker Center together, but I... <laughs> That obviously is not what happened. Marcia and Cato. <laughs> yeah. And they're holding hands. Just because they're like the two characters in the story for us. I just assume that they're like going to go hang out. But like, no, <laughs> of course not. I think it's because they would probably be like a good sort of like short lived USA Network buddy cop show in the 90s. Yeah. And it's like Marcia and the dude. Yeah. <laughs> I know there were probably a lot of dramas revolving around house guests in the years after this trial. <laughs> the big boom in house guest narratives. So after Cato's testimony, they questioned the coroner, David Golden, about his report on Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman. Mm -hmm. And she writes, I sat at counsel's table while David questioned Golden. What I remember most about the testimony that afternoon was not the witness, but the exhibits the pictures of the victims. David had organized and mounted the autopsy photos on a strip of cardboard. It was a stroke of superb lawyering. Up until then, I'd been busy with the criminalists and hadn't even seen those unforgettable, gruesome photos. Good God. Yeah, they're fucking brutal. I remember those from the OJ Made in America documentary. It's like mm -hmm. really rough. Yeah, and I don't really want to talk about that in detail right now because I think that's its own subject matter. Yeah. I can't imagine looking at those for the first time in public, I guess, is the first thing I think of. Yeah. What effect do those photos have on you? I, I mean, I only saw glimpses of them because I was like, oh, shit. And then I put my hands over my eyes. Yeah. But from what I can tell or like how they've been described to me, it's just an extremely intimately violent act to kill somebody with a knife in a way that like is unfathomable just hearing like so-and-so was stabbed to death it's like the actual reality of somebody being stabbed to death is like fucking grisly dude yeah you know all of that 
certainly is true. And I think when I think about my memory of those pictures, which I probably haven't looked at in over a year, what I find I think most upsetting about them is how much you can see about how these people died. What do you mean? Because I feel like you, I mean, A, just from the details of what happened, you get some sense of just how much pain <laughs> yeah. is involved in that. But then also just the fact that um, to die in such a struggle, I mean, because they're Nicole Brown and Ron Goldman were inside of her kind of condo yard, which was fenced in. And so one of the things that Marsha notes when she's looking at these pictures, she says of, of Ron Goldman's body, the killer had waged a merciless assault against an unarmed, unsuspecting victim, a victim who was rapidly trapped in a cage-like corner of metal fencing. That sucks. Yeah. I have nothing I have nothing remotely insightful to say. It just is a huge bummer for both of these people. Yeah. And about Nicole, she says, she lay there like a marionette discarded by the puppeteer. Ugh. I had a mental flash of the photo of her that hung by the stairs at Rockingham. I recalled her bright, glossy features. That was a rich man's wife, someone to whom I couldn't relate. Now, as I saw her frail and broken in death, I felt a surge of helpless anger. I fought back the feeling. Times like this call for cool reason. The last thing you can afford is too much feeling. I drove home that night feeling dejected. Next to me was a stack of files and documents high enough to qualify me for the carpool lane. The cell phone rang, but I didn't pick it up. I'd answer calls when I got home, after the kids were asleep. That was when the night shift began. So we all know that cool reason is not going to be possible for anyone. Yeah. <laughs> and especially not Marsha Clark. It's hard because she's such a complicated figure because she is the only one who's putting Nicole front and center and seems to be actually mad about this in any sort of visceral way. Yeah. But she's also like working within a system where the same system that allows her to enact that anger in a sort of societal way also gives her a bunch of really big blind spots. Yeah. And I think this is what I find most compelling about her that like she has this passion for avenging Nicole basically and she is trying to avenge her and I feel as if she is in a world where what you can do with that passion as a woman trying to act on behalf of other women is to put men in prison yeah you know and that's just the part where I'm like I I think your passion is justified and I think that the shape that it has taken and the infrastructure you are working in is not worthy of the reason that you're doing this to begin with. Right. Is that it? Are we leaving Marsha sleeping next to her moldy wall with her stack of papers and her vengeance? Yeah, with her samurai sword. Her yellow jumpsuit. Her list of people she's going to prosecute. Yeah. Yes. Let us <laughs> let us depart this fitfully sleeping lawyer mm -hmm. as we close another day. Mm -hmm. I feel... A whole lot of ways about Marsha, and maybe you do too. I think the real lesson to take away from this episode is don't lie about stuff when there is footage available. Yeah, that's actually <laughs> a very usable lesson. We <laughs> normally don't have those. Yeah. <laughs> Just assume that, like, there's footage of everything, because there kind of is now. Yes, and, there um, kind of is tell now. the truth, because it's just, it's just easier to not have to remember stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>